Do we pause AI development like everybody wants us to do, or should we invent AI weapons before our enemies do? Do we give our kids smartphones or wait until they're older? When is older? How old is older? Do we encourage our own aspirations or others, our children's aspirations for financial success and freedom? Or do we hold back out of fear for the negative aspects of wealth? These are major questions that every thinking person must grapple with. That was the, uh, the copy that I posted on social media to present today's class. I'm not sure we'll have an answer about the AI, AI weapons or not, but we'll start building up the thesis that in Judaism, at least in the way the Rebbe presents it, um, a perspective that guides us with our interactions with the material world. So there is going to be a, or there is already, if you're listening to this on the podcast, a link to a source sheet where you can read along with the Torah sources that I'm going to be quoting in today's class. In order to address all these questions comprehensively, you really need to have an overall guiding light what is your attitude? What is your perspective to the material world? And best of that, as, as best as I can tell, there are three broad approaches that you can find in societies, in groups, in communities, in schools of thought throughout the world. One school of thought says the physical world is full of challenges, full of dangers, full of potential negativity. And therefore, the, least, the less you have to do with it, the better. If you can avoid engaging with the physical world, if you can avoid engaging with materialism, you'll be better off spiritually and morally. And get through life with the bare minimum of engagement and interaction with the physical world. That's how you'll make sure to live a virtuous life. There's another position, another school of thought that says, physical world, that's all that we know. That's all that exists. That's all that's really real. Spirituality, morality, these are all vague, people's opinions, beliefs. It's not real, it's not concrete. All we have is what we can measure with our five senses. This is the scientific method. Everything else is just a guess. So, as far as we can tell, um, physicality, materialism, the material world is really all there ever, there ever is, all there ever was, all there ever will be. And... Um, by that measure, this is, this is primary. Everything else sort of revolves around that, if, if it even exists. A third position is that certainly spirituality, God, the Torah, and so on, are real and are the most important elements of life. However, that's not to exclude the material world from the equation. The material world exists in a default state, default state of sort of disconnection where we don't really perceive how it has anything to do with our spirituality, with our values. In fact, sometimes it seems to be contradictory to our values. And Our job in the world is to actually bring a connection and a cohesion between the values of Judaism and everything in the physical material world. As you'll see throughout the class, this is the approach that's dominant in Chabad teachings. It's dominant, especially in the Rebbe's teachings. Mm -hmm. And this is the approach that we're going to be working with. But it's based on a number of ideas 
throughout the Torah. It's not something that Chabad invented. So without further ado, if you can look at your source sheet, you'll see source number one is a quote from the Midrash. The Midrash says as follows. Um, you go down about halfway down the paragraph where it says, the Torah says, I was the tool of his artistry. I was a tool of Hashem's artistry, referring to the fact that the king of flesh and blood, a human king who builds palaces in this world, does not do so from his own knowledge, but from the knowledge of an artist. And the artist himself does not create from his own knowledge, but rather from his tools and implements in order to know how to make rooms and carve designs. Similarly, Hashem looked into the Torah and created the world. This is a key key statement. Hashem looked into the Torah and created the world. The Torah is basically the blueprint from which God then went about creating the world. And the Torah says, In the beginning Hashem created the heavens and the earth, and there is no beginning except for the Torah. As it says, the Lord acquired me at the beginning of His way. The basic message here is, just like you have in the physical world, whenever you build a building or a house or anything you might build, there's a plan that you follow. The plan precedes the creation. You don't create out of thin air, making it up as you go. Um, Actually, parenthetically, I think there's a castle in England where they did exactly that. Or maybe it's a mansion in California. I don't know. Somewhere, a person with way too much money built a house and a palace exactly like that, without any plan, just adding rooms and structures as they went along and ended up being this ridiculous, ridiculous structure. Anyway, a normal person properly designing and properly building will first create a plan and then build from the plan. So too, when Hashem created the world, He also had a plan. What is the blueprint? What is the plan for creation of the entire universe? It's the Torah. Now, the reason this is so important is because this idea that Hashem uses the Torah as the blueprint means that fundamentally it's actually impossible for there to be something in the world, in the entire universe, that's actually in conflict, truly in conflict, really, essentially in conflict with the Torah because everything that exists in the world started off in the plan, in the Torah. So the Torah doesn't contradict itself and there's nothing in the world that could really truly be contradictory to the Torah because it all is rooted in the Torah. So if it's rooted in the Torah, so it's con- consistent with the Torah. The question is, do we always? Uh, does it always appear to us to be that way? No. And, and the question is only, how are we going to find and identify, are we going to be able to uncover how this particular element of the world is related to the Torah? Can we tie it back to its source? Can we connect the dots? You look at a cucumber and you say, okay, what is the Torah's perspective on a cucumber? How does this function? What role does this play in the Torah's view of reality? And so on and so forth. But fundamentally, from this Midrash, you have already the, 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 the kernel of the idea that because Hashem looked in the Torah and created the world, it's the blueprint of the entire universe, there's nothing in the universe that can, that can truly be in conflict with the Torah. And our job, our mission in this world, is to find out how. It's a great adventure. Lots of ups and downs. And it's not only that the Torah tells us how to use, how to interact with the physical world. It's more than that. It goes deeper. If you look in the second source, this is a quote from the, Mid, from the Mishnah in Prikei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers, where it says, with ten utterances the world was created. Hashem created the world with ten statements. Um... And these are what's described in the first chapter of Bereshit, of Genesis in the Torah, 
where it says, And God said, Let there be light. There was one utterance. God said, Let there be trees. Let there be animals. All these statements that God made brought the world into existence. And altogether, there are ten of them. And obviously, when Hashem speaks, it's not uh, human speech through lips and a tongue and teeth and a mouth and a voice box. It's a, it's a figure of speech to reveal, to express the energy that was previously latent within God was now expressed to the outside in the act of creation. That's the metaphor, the analogy that the Torah uses by calling it speech. Now in Tanya, the most fundamental book of Chabad philosophy, which is the next item on the source sheet here, um, we have a fascinating, radical, beautiful idea. It goes like this. It is written, forever Hashem, your word stands firm in the heavens. That's a verse in the book of Psalms, book of Tehillim. That Hashem's word is always, forever, standing firm in the heavens. Vashem Tov, a blessed memory, explained that your word is a reference to which you uttered, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. The, the, the utterances that we just mentioned, the ten utterances that Hashem created the world, that through which Hashem created the world, these very words and letters stand firmly forever within the firmament of heaven and are forever clothed within all the heavens to give them life. The expression of Hashem's energy, which is the analogy of speech that we use, through which Hashem created the world, the world is not a one-time thing. We say that God created the world 5,783 years ago. It's not a one-time thing, set it and forget it, wind up toy and let it march away. This is an ongoing process. Those words and letters are always embedded in, within every aspect of the universe, and that's what gives them life. This is the energy of the universe. This is why things exist, as opposed to not existing. And it functions in a similar way to electrical current, where you have electrical current flowing into a light bulb, and as long as that current is flowing in, the light bulb will be on. And it's not good enough that a minute ago there was electrical current flowing and that won't help you have the, the light bulb you know, shining light now if there's no electrical current flowing now. Every moment there has to be current flowing, otherwise the light will go off. And if you shut off the current, instantly the light goes out. It's similar. It, this works in a similar way where Hashem is constantly involved in the creation of the universe. At every moment it is constantly being recreated in a sense, now it's just renewal of the existing creation, but it's it's a new creation in the sense that it needs new energy at every moment. Yesterday's energy doesn't mean anything for today. A minute ago, the energy doesn't mean anything for right now. At every moment, there's fresh energy flowing into the universe from Hashem to keep everything in existence. For if the letters were to depart, even for an instant, continues in the Tanya here, God forbid, and return to their source, all the heavens would become not an absolute nothingness. And it would be as though they had never existed at all, exactly as before the utterance, let there be a firmament. He's using here the particular example of creation of the heavens, but the same thing applies to every aspect of the universe. That if God forbid Hashem's words, that He spoke the world into existence, would, would be extracted, would pull out from within the universe, the letters would depart, then all of matter, all of the universe, would revert to nothingness. How do you destroy the world if you're God? you have to make a big fire? Do you have to flood it? No. Simply pull the plug. Simply stop speaking the world into existence, and it all ceases to exist instantly.
this gives us an idea of, on one hand, the the uh, how, how tenuous existence is. It's not guaranteed at all. And every moment we exist at the mercy, by the grace of God, keeping us in existence. But more than that, this also gives us an idea, a very powerful, positive idea, that the essence of every single thing is divine energy. The essence of every single aspect of the universe is divine energy. And as a result, when we have that perspective, we look at everything in the created world. We look at the cucumber, we look at a knife, we look at an internet, we look at AI, whatever it is, and we say the essence of this thing is divine energy. That means that it has the capacity it has the capacity to be utilized in such a way that's consistent and coherent with its divine energy. That's what it really is deep down. We're not introducing something new. We're not layering something over what it is. This is the baseline of its existence. Its core existence, its core identity is divine energy. How hard could it be? Or so the question goes. How hard could it be to find a way to connect the dots if this is what it is deep down after all? can't be that hard. It must be possible. And this gives us the conviction, again, not only how to utilize everything according to Torah's instructions, but also that deep down this is the reality of everything that exists in the physical world, and therefore it's totally possible to uncover and connect the dots and find a way to utilize everything in the physical world for a positive, godly purpose that's coherent with its divine essence. And we see this idea playing out even on a very simple level. There's a bit of the, there's a there's a quote here from the Talmud. If you keep scrolling down the source sheet, Talmud Bavakama, page ninety two A, Daf Bays, Amud Aleph. The Talmud over here is going into a bit of a non legal discussion as it does sometimes. And it's addressing a very peculiar question. Rava said to Rabbi, Rabbi Barmari, from where is this matter derived, whereby people say, poverty follows the poor? <coughs> the question Rava's asking is, there's this common saying people have. It's just, you know, slang. It's an expression people use. There's no, it's not a Torah idea. It's just a, an expression that, you know, at, at his time, this was a thing that people said. Poverty follows the poor. And he's asking... What is the source in Torah for this idea? Now, Rabbi Barmari said to him, I have an answer for you. We learned in a Mishnah, rich people would bring their first fruits. There was a mitzvah to bring the first fruits that grew in every orchard every year. You had to bring that to the Beit HaMikdash, the temple in Jerusalem, as a gift to God. And you'd give it to the priests, and the priests, the Kohanim, would eat it. So it says in the Mishnah that rich people would bring their first fruits in baskets of gold and of silver, and poor people would bring their first fruits in wicker baskets made of peeled willow, much more humble containers, much more simple containers. And they would give the baskets and the first fruits to the priests, to the Kohanim. Now the rule was the rich people would get their baskets back, the poor people would not get their baskets back. And, um, and, and this, is, this is Rabbi Barmari's proof that if you're poor, you're destined to remain poor and get even poorer. What do you see here? The poor person who scrapes together enough money to find a humble wicker basket loses the basket. He comes home empty-handed. He, he's, he's down a basket. 
whereas the rich people get their baskets back. Okay, now the Talmud explained that that's because it was very special and precious to God that the, the poor person would sacrifice to have that wicker basket. Hashem says, that's very dear to me, let it stay here. Whereas the rich people bring a basket of gold that they're showing off, they're, they're showing off to their friends how rich they are, God says, I don't need that, you can take it home. But the point, is, the point remains. What's going on over here? There's this working assumption that an expression in society, a random expression, just what people say, not a Torah idea, it's not a quote from a verse in the Bible, it's just an expression that people say, the rabbis in the Talmud are having a, have a working assumption that we can ask the question, where is the Torah source for this expression, for this saying? What does that mean? Teaching us that even something that people just say casually as part of their everyday language, and even something that's said by regular, simple people, not scholars, not necessarily the leaders of a society, just regular people, simple people, even something that they say in their common language, we expect, as just a, a, a casual expectation, there's going to be a source in the Torah for this expression. What does that show you? It's the same point again, that everything that happens, everything that exists in the world, has a source in the Torah. Why? Because the world itself altogether is sourced and rooted in the Torah. The Torah is the blueprint of all of reality. And therefore we expect to be able to find an origin in Torah, a source in Torah, for something like the slang of the day. And we can adapt this to uh, modern slang with hilarious results. The point remains. And this is also basically the, the idea at the heart of what it says in the next source here in Pike Avot chapter 6. Whatever Hashem, the Holy One, blessed be He, created in His world, He created only for His glory. Everything that exists in the universe is there to further God's glory. As it said, all who are linked to my name, who I have created, formed, and made for my glory. And this is the idea. Everything that exists in the physical world should not be seen as being irredeemable, should not be seen as having what possible connection could there be to Torah, what possible connection could there be to Jewish values and spirituality and morality. It's not that we have to prove the, 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 the radical point, it's that's the baseline, that's the, that's the core of reality. Our job is only to discover and connect the dots. Well, how are we going to connect the dots between um, you know, streaming services of video online and the Torah? Okay, good question. Let's, let's put our heads together. What can we come up with? Any technology that will ever be developed, as, that has ever been developed. This is the question. Now you're going to say, Rabbi, this sounds very nice, but you and I both know that the internet has brought tremendous damage to society. Social media has brought tremendous damage to society. And AI it's, is almost terrifying where it could take us as a society. So you can't just come in here with the rose-colored glasses saying, look, it's all part of God, it's all divine energy, so it's all wonderful. There's real issues we have to contend with here. And I agree, absolutely. My kids don't have smartphones. I'm not running to give them all access to social media at the age of 12. Absolutely not. And it's for that reason. Because it will do more harm than good. So how do, we, how do we start to square all this? It's not, this is not meant to be a perspective that's blind to the realities of the dangers of whatever it is in the physical world you want to talk about. You want to talk about money? Money can be a source for tremendous good. Money can drag a person to the bottom of the barrel. 
Money can wreck a person. It can, it can destroy his personality and his character. Food. Food is necessary, wonderful, nutritious, healthy, or the, the key to your early death. Which one is it? And how do we, how do we navigate? What's our, what's our guiding principle here? So none of this is to say that the, 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 choice, <clears throat> the choices are obvious or easy. There's definitely a choice to be made. This is why the Torah tells us in your next source, scroll down. Um, I call heaven and earth to witness against you in this day. God says, I have put before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life if you and your offspring will li- would live. We have choices to make. There's always a way, there's always two ways to go. In everything that we are engaging with in the physical world, it can go either in the way of life or in the way of death. This that I'm talking about, that there is divine energy within everything, and the Torah is giving us the guidelines for life because it is the blueprint of the world, and there's nothing in the world that can truly be in conflict. It doesn't mean that we don't have difficult choices to make and difficult choices to navigate, and we can sometimes make the wrong choice, and we can sometimes mess it up really badly. Absolutely, all that's true. But it's also to say that we have the capacity and the potential is there within the world to choose life and to make decisions and choices in such a way that everything that we're doing is actually leading to that kind of constructive divine purpose. And here's a very interesting follow-up point. Um, The second to last bit on the page from the Mishnah of Odazara. The Gentiles asked the Jewish sages who were in Rome, Presumably, these were Romans who asked the Jewish sages. The question was, if it is not God's will that people should engage in idol worship, why does he not eliminate it? Very simple question. You say your God hates idol worship. Let him just wipe it all out. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. Why does he, why does he tolerate idol worship? Why does he allow it to continue to exist? It's a great question. Why does God allow for any kind of perversion, any kind of evil, any kind of moral wrong? Sages said to them, were a people worshipping only objects for which the world has no need, he would eliminate it. If people were worshipping, um, you know, really silly things, then and nobody needed them, then sure, you could argue that Hashem would eliminate it. But the people worship the sun and the moon, and the stars and the constellations. Here's the punchline. Should he destroy his world because of the fools? It's a rhetorical question. You want to make a mistake? You want to choose wrongly? You can do that. God gives you the freedom of choice. Choose. Should he take away your freedom of choice because there are some people who will choose foolishly? That's not what this is about. So the same thing you can say, you know, you argue about the dangers of the internet, the dangers of social media. Very dangerous. There's no question. I'm the first one to agree with all the dangers. And that's why, personally, my phone, my internet at home is filtered. It's filtered to block out all kinds of things, whether it's time wasters or worse. Because there is that danger. And you always have to be on guard for it. You have to take precautions. You have to set up barriers and roadblocks and make sure you don't go in the wrong way. But to shut it off totally and to say there's nothing good here is, is also missing the point. That's, that's basically taking this, this approach. Should God destroy his world because of the fools? Because there's people who choose foolishly because there are foolish choices available to you 
Should we eliminate all the good, all the positivity, all the amazingness that could come out of this thing? The internet has done tremendous things for human progress, for, for, for prosperity, for connection, for community, for values, for education, for, for everything. There's so many positives that have come out of it. So we should lose all those positives because of the fools? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And we have our we have our work cut out for us. We have to make the right choices. But we're not going to be blind to the positive element just because there's a poss- possibility for a negative outcome. We're going to take precautions. We'll do what we can to ward off the negativity. And we're going to focus our, our efforts as best as we can on harvesting all the positivity that's that's within this physical world. Another interesting idea about this you see in the Midrash where it says, Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, the last source on the page, Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish said, the world was not worthy of gold. Gold is too beautiful, too precious for people just to use for their personal stuff, for jewelry or for wealth or whatever. Why then did God create gold? The answer is for its use in the Mishkan and in the Holy Temple. And once it's there, fine, you can use it for other things. But what's the, what's the essence of what it's there for? It's there for the service of God. This kind of sums up the, the view. There's this material in the world. It's called gold. Gold can be used in many, many ways, both positive and negative. Why is it truly here? What does the Torah have to say about why gold exists? Gold exists to adorn the, the, um, the uh, artifacts, the, 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 the furniture, so to speak, in God's temple. That's why it's here. And by extension any other mundane use that you might have of gold needs to be used in a similar direction, in something positive and constructive that contributes ultimately to the vision that the Torah has for life on earth. And you'll tell me, ah, but there are people who will use gold in negative ways. Go back to the point. Should God destroy his world because of the fools? This is the game of life. We always have that possibility there but fundamentally to live life in such a way that you're afraid of the negativity and you're going to lock out all the positivity because of that, in this view, is, um, is, not, is not acceptable. And we have to embrace all the opportunities that we have in front of us, all the positive elements that allow us to harness the potential in a positive, constructive way that's in everything in the physical world and identify how this is going to lead to a greater connection to its divine source. How are we going to use this particular element of the physical world in a way that's coherent with its divine and its divine essence? And in doing so, we will find peace between the tension of physical and spiritual, the tension between body and soul. We'll have the principled engagement with the physical world that allows us to live out our spiritual values in the context of the physical world, which is what life is all about. And we will bring about the coming of Mashiach. Amen. L'chaim. I would love to hear your feedback and your comments. If you've listened to the end and you've learned something today, please reach out. Send me an email, rmg at jewishwaterloo.com. If you have a question, if you have a comment, anything to follow up, I just would like to hear from who the people that listen to this podcast are. Tell me what you think. Thank you.